Welcome to Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jowl. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over the course of these series, I've been chatting to artistic directors, Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, about what they've learned about life and theatre in four decades of making plays all over the world. In this episode, I sat down to talk to Declan about Hamlet. So we've been talking a lot recently about one of the most famous speeches in all of Shakespeare, Hamlet's speech that starts to be or not to be, that is the question. Tell us more about that speech. Well, what's interesting is that Shakespeare manages to have Hamlet say the most famous line in all world theatre. Everybody knows it, you know, people quote it at you in different languages, you know, bit and so on. But what's interesting to notice is that Shakespeare makes the most fascinating line out of the most boring words in the English language. And first of all, it's a shattering run of Shakespearean monosyllables, we should notice. I always think that's really interesting in Shakespeare. But the verb of being, it's very difficult to be present with it for very long because we've got nothing to grasp onto. I have to come out and say that words of being and existentialism to exist, I find the actual word... It's like it's laced with an anaesthetic. It puts me to sleep. And any time anybody talked about existentialism at school, I'd start to fall asleep before the end of the word. I don't know what it is. It's just there's something about the idea of being that's so impalpable, you can't get your hand on it. Now, what happens in the speech is that when you play it, on the whole, the actor has to translate be into live so that it, very often that happens and it works quite well. It's live or not live because then when he talks about suicide in the next line, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or that he seems to be debating on the pros and cons of committing suicide. But that actually isn't what he said in the first line. And that Shakespeare could say what he wanted to there, and he could have said to live or not to live, that is the question. And it would be easy peasy. But he doesn't say that. In fact, he comes out with a question about the nature of existence that puzzled philosophers from basically before philosophy began, before Plato, and troubles people over and over again, and different people think they've got rid of it. But it comes back and back to the question about existence. What is existence? And I'm very aware that, you know, it's an incredibly boring word, existence. And an, an actor, a young actor particularly, might say, yeah, 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 but, you know, I've got to deal with the here and now, Declan. You're always talking about the carnal embodied space and so on. So why should I worry about existence? What, what's that to me? Isn't that kind of like a bit, you know, grand, a bit esoteric? But actually, the problem is that it's extremely important from us, right, from the very, very beginning. And I can only explain it by telling some stories if I may. Please do tell us a story Declan. (laughs) Well I was once sort of somewhat cajoled (laughs) doing a talk for a very expensive boys school and these were the sort of sixth forms and they're very interested in theatre and um, I I was about to go into a room of extremely entitled young people you know born with golden silver spoons in their mouths and what have you and expected to walk straight into a great job and they left. And I was very prejudiced. Um, But I don't know, I got the grace at the moment when I walked into the room to suspend my judgment, which I really should do more often because judging people like that just makes me very stupid. And I was able to see them for the first time, these these kids. And um, the the eyes were like the shark eyes of ambition. They were sort of glittering and they had elbows up. But I just sort of looked at them and I realised it was a kind of watershed moment in my life because they were so frightened. 
And all of that shark-eyed stuff just came from absolute terror. And I was thinking to myself, terror of what? And I think it's terror of a sort of failure, but it's a kind of terror of not happening. It comes out as a desire for success. And we've all known very ambitious people do anything for success. We mark it down, judge it, don't like it. But I think that behind it is a terrible fear of of something much more negative. And that's very, very difficult to explain. But it's really important that we do so, because that is what makes these plays happen, is to avoid this dread. The other story I'd like to tell at the other end of the age group from these young kids who wanted to go into theatre was a friend of mine was looking after an old woman who had dementia. And he was talking to her, and she got very panicky and said to him, are are you there? And he said, yes. And she said, am I here? Am I here? And I don't think it's all right to write that off as a sort of madness for somebody who's sick. I think it's a really important question at the heart of us all, because it was, I think, the same question that was behind those boys' eyes, actually. It's like, am I here? And how am I going to prove that I'm here? And this is not true, but useful. I think it's useful to imagine that perhaps human beings are animals who are born with a doubt that they exist. Perhaps that sounds incredibly pretentious. But, you know, if it opens the door for you, use it. Because in a play like Romeo and Juliet, in Macbeth, we see people doing completely crazy things that are going to end in their self-destruction. And we need to ask why, bit by bit, all sorts of things start to fall into place once one uses that as a key. That I don't really think I'm here, like that old lady. Am I here? I'll do this. If I kill Duncan, then I'll be here. If I marry somebody, uh, and, and even though it's going to in, it result inevitably in our deaths, at least I'll know I existed. I made a decision. I'll know I existed because I did something. I can cause massive damage, and then I'll know I was here. I can burn down a building, and then I would know I was here. To do things to, to kind of prove that you're here is incredibly human. And some people have to say they're here by talking very loudly, playing music very loudly, taking a lot of space. We know all that. It's just that the absolute terror of not existing is really important. It's to do with why we do things. Why do people dementedly do their career? Why do we put so much energy into doing so many extraordinary things? And maybe that's what somebody needs to do to give them some sense of existence. But we don't really know why we need to do the things that we do. We just know that we need to do them. Because they make us feel like we're there. Because we feel like we're there. And when we can't do what we do, what we do... So I direct plays in order to feel I'm there. Now I can't direct plays because it's COVID. But I mean, I get these great tsunamis of futility that come over me. And... I'm sure everybody, I know other people do as well, and think, oh, it's all, you know, nonsense. But I I keep it at bay by um, doing these podcasts, workshops, doing a bit of teaching. Writing a book. Yeah, writing a book. (laughs) (laughs) And then I watch pretty questionable TV series. um, (laughs) And I I distract myself. It's, It's that feeling of futility that takes over us so very easily. And I think we're prone to it. And I, I think the danger is that you'll believe, you know, that man is born free and is everywhere in chains. We're not born free. 
We are so not born free. We are born with a set of needs, and if they're not met, we go crazy. So we're not born neutral. We ain't neutral count. We aren't blank checks. We ain't neutral canvases. We're born with a lot of needs, and we, well, not maybe a lot, but very specific needs, and they need to be addressed. I'm almost starting to think that the, uh, this predisposition to doubt that we exist is somehow genetic. I have no idea. I don't need to know, because the truth doesn't really, in a way, and so as far as my work is concerned or my teaching concerned, doesn't matter as much as whether or not it's useful and somebody else can use it to do something that opens doors for them. And it does seem a very useful way of thinking about every character in every play, not just Hamlet. No. I think, though, that this thing about existence is very, very important in comedies. If we take a classic rom-com, and I always talk about Beatrice and Benedict in Much Ado because I know it's a very sort of old Shakespearean rom-com. It's still the basis for a lot of... Or we can talk about, you know, Jane Austen, you know, it's a sort of early 19th century novel. Um, Actually, at the heart of those great plots, the lead characters have to die and be reborn. There's like... um, an old self, an old person, the person I'm clinging to for dear life. My existence depends on being this person who doesn't love, who has to resist love, who can't, who doesn't do this. And normally that old self is um, humiliated very painfully in such a way that we roar with laughter and they get reborn as somebody who can love. So you actually witness a kind of immolation and rebirth in a comedy. And if it ain't painful, as I always say, it isn't funny. You know, that's the absolute test of it. But that you're still watching with this grappling of existence of people who just cannot fall in love, they, who can't make friends, who insist on being um, shut away on their own. So, for example, we have, you know, we've talked about character, but I think sometimes we cling on to things about our character because at least they prove that I exist. At least I know that I exist. Um, and it's such a wonderful way of even looking at the smallest characters. I mean, I know we talk about the mechanicals in Midsummer Night's Dream yes. a lot, but when you think, of, I don't know, about Peter Quince, who is, you know, a backstreet tailor who has ambitions to become artistic director of the National Theatre of Athens. And, you know, the lengths that he goes to to put together his band of scrappy actors to make a piece of art. You think this is a man who's terrified that no one could see him. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And I think words like narcissism are very dangerous because they lead us into judgmentalism. And, but actually, we do, we do need to be seen. And the greatest hurt we can do to each other is, is not to see each other, is to pretend we don't see each other. And overall, I think that makes for a really radical reading of that incredibly famous speech by Hamlet, because so often it's assumed that to be or not to be, that is the question. The next thought logically follows on from it whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. And when he starts talking about suicide in the next line, you're actually suggesting there's a jump. He's talking about one thing in the first line, which is existence, and something else completely different in the second line, which is about the much simpler question of suicide. That for him, the question of whether to live or die is easier to think about than the question of do I even exist or not? Yes, of course. I think the second line starts the cover-up in that speech. Exactly the same thing happened in the 20th century when phenomenologists said, you know, why should being happen? Why should things be rather than not be? And some English and American colleagues answered back, well, there's no answer to that question, so there's no point in asking it. And so they replied again, well, actually, it's because there's no answer to the question that it's the most important question to ask. To say it's puzzling to philosophers is an understatement, but it's an important question to keep asking. You know, why should I be rather than not be? And yes, it does 
It sounds airy-fairy. It's a terrible thing. As soon as you start talking about it, it becomes so boring. Um, why should I be rather not be, oh, for God's sake, I can just, you know, where do I stand? Where do you want me to move? You know, but actually this idea that you doubt that you exist, so you do things. Of course, on the whole, we're not really aware, of course. So, for example, for the very ambitious young man, young woman going into the world who are sort of have sort of killer ambition, they will probably see primarily that they want things. They'll think they want things. They're the alpha males and females who have a lot of will and they're going to get their ideas forward and they're going to achieve. But they also have, a in their peripheral vision, not like that loser over there, not like that loser over there. As Gore Vidal said acerbically, it's not just important that I win, it's important that somebody else fails. It's really horrible. But we're thinking about it, even though it's horrible. I think it's really important to feed it into the rehearsal room um, as an idea quite early because it gives the actor some sense of the energy with which that character is pursuing their ends. You see, I, I think wanting things is not enough. It's the dreading losing things that tends to get you there faster and deeper. There's not enough energy in wanting. No, I really want this, I really want this. But if you look at it again, you'll see it's actually a dread of losing it, and that's where the energy comes from. So, yeah, somebody who's very ambitious may have lost sense of their dread of failure. I don't know, though. I think not. I think somewhere the ghost is still there that haunts them. So, for example, how would you introduce this into a rehearsal room to help energise the process? I think I'd talk about it and see if it ignites or kindles something in the actor and sort of hope they don't reject it and think that it sounds pretentious or esoteric or overly psychological in some way, you know, too cleverly deep. But I think it's something to face, and I think it's the only way that we can get that spark in the eyes. We can talk about it as a fear of failure, you know, that, that Macbeth starts by telling us that he's afraid that he will fail to, to murder Duncan, and that's the word he uses to his wife. But if we fail, but screw your courage, sticking place, run of monosyllables coming, and we'll not fail. But I think even failure is covering up for this sense of non-existence. Let me explain the way I think we should think of this non-existence thing, that, the way that might help. Not just you, you get annihilated in the present. It's not just that you get annihilated in the future. It's also somehow that your past gets written out. So it's not as if this fear is just about not existing in the present. It's as if you will have never existed at all, ever. Yes, it's exactly that. And it's very, it's very difficult to explain that in words. You've done very well. Um, it's not just I'm afraid I'll be annihilated in the present. It's not just my future is going to be rubbed out. But my whole past is going to be cancelled out as well. In Andromac by Racine, one character says to another when they're separating, actually, I never loved you. And that's the final kind of hating cruelty, really, that the past didn't happen either. And it's difficult to explain why that matters so much, but it does matter an awful lot somehow. And we don't even need to know why. We can. It's good to ask why, but I don't think we necessarily need to know that we'll find an answer to that question. But the idea of the past being annihilated is 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 really very important. Um, a lot of imagery about love. It's like I love you, I will always love you, and somehow I always have loved you. That there's this in great need in declarations of love to use intimations of immortality, eternity. I mean, it's, it's the stuff of all sorts of love songs. and Or I always think of that song, you know, Fame, the second line of it um, from the musical Fame, Fame, I'm going to live forever. That there's a time-defying, it will always be it is and it always was. 
But this idea of removing the past, so we actually never had a past between us either. There was nothing, there was never anything between us, actually. Nothing ever actually happened. So it's like almost just trying to make a notch on the universe. That's what every character is trying to do. Just make themselves exist in the vast, overwhelming terror of time and space. And feeling really scared that you don't matter at all. Yes. I find a useful way to think about a life is as being like a wave in the sea. That we come from something, we have a difference from it. And then we go into it again. So we have a period of time when we have a, a being, an existence, a separateness. And we put a lot of energy into maintaining that distinctness, a huge amount. In fact, most of our energy is in maintaining that um, distinctness. You'll notice I didn't say before you go back into the ocean, because you don't quite go back into the ocean, because because you've minutely existed, the ocean's going to be minutely different when you go back into it. And whether you're the biggest tsunami or the tiniest ripple, you will go into the same ocean, and one water molecule is very much like another. And so that mighty ocean, however minutely, is going to be changed by the fact that we have existed. I find that useful. I don't say it's true, but I find that a comforting and calming thought um, that we, we sort of face that entropy together hand in hand no matter what our contribution's been. And the huge fear fueling every character in every play is the worry that things won't have been minutely different because they were there at all. And they get up to the most ludicrous things just to prove that they are changing the universe. Well, Lucy, that's what I've found useful. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe to some people it sounds absolutely preposterous, but, you know, it's helped me for the last, you know, four decades of work to get through. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Not True But Useful. The music you're hearing was composed by Sergei Chekrashov for Cheap by Giles production of Three Sisters. Listen in for more bonus episodes to come. And until then, stay well. Stay well.